time to be here, um, and I think you'll see why. Thank you, Rabbi. Well, they sometimes say you shouldn't introduce a man who needs no introduction, but you know, you all know Rabbi Spitzer, uh, the Rabbi Emeritus of Temple Israel here in Canton, who was, I'm not sure who's feeding back who. Uh, he was my Rebbe for many years. And so uh, it gives me great pleasure to turn the podium over to him after doing one thing with which we have begun all these sessions. Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kedeshanu B'Mitzvotah V'Tzivanu La'asok B'Divrei Torah Blessed are you, eternal our God, ruler of the universe, who has sanctified us with your commandments and commanded us to immerse ourselves in words of Torah. Lord our God, make the words of your Torah pleasant in our mouth and in the mouth of your people, the house of Israel, so that we and our descendants and the descendants of your people, the house of Israel, may all know your name and study the Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, eternal our God, who teaches Torah to your people, Israel. Rabbi Spitzer. First of all, I thank you very much for the invitation to uh, come back to Christ Church. Uh, each and every year, my personal relationship with this church, its members, its clergy, uh, deepens. We have certainly made <clears throat> a number of journeys together. Zev and I have, uh, I guess, gone full circle. We, uh, maybe it's not even full circle. It's just up the mountain together. And uh, I have uh, had the, the privilege and the honor of sharing significant things in his life. Our trip to Israel, if you ever told me that a rabbi could feel such joy at watching Christians immerse themselves in the Jordan River, I wouldn't have believed you but it's true. Uh, so it's very, very good to be here. Uh, this is a, a significant day, as we all know from the news. Uh, listening to what happened in Pittsburgh uh, is a particular horror, um, but not particular because it's worse than any other. It's not worse than a Sikh who is mistaken for a Muslim and killed. It's not different from African-Americans who are gathered in their church to study Bible. It's not different from people who are out in public enjoying life uh, and have a mass shooter come and shoot them. It's not different from people uh, who happen to be of a different sexual orientation than uh, some of us and, and are at a club having a good time. In essence, what you have is hatred drilling holes in shredding people's lives, tearing families apart. Uh, and I would say to you, and this is a very personal thing, so uh, I would say to you that uh, the important thing for us is now to begin to hold people accountable for that. Uh, the idea that we need to uh, arm 
uh, have armed guards in front of our places of worship uh, is frightening. It's as frightening as having armed guards at our schools. Uh, it's as frightening as having armed guards at baseball games and so on and so forth. And I, I believe very strongly that anybody who uses the old canard, oh my goodness, it's too soon to talk about that, is somebody that has their heads not only in the sand, but in other places that I won't mention. Uh, we need to go to the polls this coming week and all of us need to vote, whatever our party, we all need to be part of the political process and we all need to begin to hold our elected officials accountable, not to be beholden to money, beholden to ideology, but to be armed with the things that we know as faithful folks, that God is love, that God creates all of us, and that God demands of us justice and action. Uh, enough of that. Okay. So um, <clears throat> uh, I'm pleased to be back. Our conversation today is going to be a conversation about Torah. Uh, I'll say a few, a few things uh, now, and then we're going to watch some videos, and then you'll have an opportunity to see a Torah scroll up close. Um, so what do I want to say now about Torah? First, the term Torah. Torah has the same root as the word or or light, has the same root as teaching. Uh, so Torah is somehow the, the light and teaching that comes to us, we believe, from God to inform our lives, to give us a path of life and a and, and a roadmap, if you will, to becoming the best human beings that we can. And the interesting thing about that, because I know all of you have studied uh, Old Testament, Hebrew Bible and so on, is that it doesn't do so by simply telling us the highlights. Oh, you know, be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. It gives us examples of human beings who are flawed, who are struggling, who are parents, who are children, who have obligations in life and have fears in life and have needs in life and how they struggle along that path that leads us to become what God intends us to be. We know that there are stories in the Bible that we are not proud of and there are stories in the Bible that we would uh, strive to emulate. You know, would that we could all be prophets and stand on the heights of truth uh, and hear God speak to us and speak those words clearly and distinctly to everybody around us. But the Torah is a real document. And because it's a real document, there's a place for each of us in it. Um, it's not just the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the generations after. It is our story, writ large. Uh, and if we find ourselves within its text, then we will hear God speaking directly to our hearts and souls. Okay, the term Torah I just mentioned to you, uh, it, term Torah is used in a variety of ways. Specifically when we say Torah, we're gonna think about this particular object here, and I don't mean the Shemata that it's wrapped in, I mean the Torah scroll that is underneath it. Uh, and we're gonna see that in a while, but we also use Torah in a larger sense, to mean in a sense, the study of, of God's word through Hebrew Bible. But we also use it in a larger sense, that we can talk about studying Torah as Zev began our session, la'asok b'divrei Torah, to soak ourselves, to sink ourselves, to become uh, uh, um, engaged in words of Torah, not only to be sacred scripture, but learning in general. 
so that when you study philosophy and theology, we could say that you are studying Torah. When I went to the seminary in Cincinnati, my whole series of classes from beginning to end was all the study of Torah. Some was study of Bible, some was study of history, philosophy, theology, rhetoric, and so on and so forth. <clears throat> but we can use it in the larger context of studying in general. Asok b'divrei Torah, to sink ourselves, to soak ourselves in words of Torah. So you kind of have to know the context. And the context that I'm going to uh, focus on today is the simple context of this object uh, that we call Torah. Um, we could study um, the Graf-Verhausen hypothesis in the prolegomena of our biblical study. And we could learn all about how scholars parse Hebrew Bible uh, and find in Hebrew Bible the possibility of a number of different documents that are woven together. We see it right in the very beginning in, in the first couple chapters of Genesis where we have two stories of creation. And we don't ask, you know, which story is right, but we say there are two stories that are woven together, the rabbis would say, to teach different things. But we could look at how scholars look at the text and see how they parse it. Well, you know, the reasons they give for different names for God, the reasons they give for a northern myth meshing with a southern myth and coming together into something, but that's not what I'm interested in. We could look at the scholarship about particular stories and look at it as literature and to see how beautifully crafted it is. We'll come to that in a moment in kind of a mystical way of studying Torah, but that's not where where I am. I'm not interested so much in the literary crafting of Torah. I'm interested in what happens when you take physical materials and how you transform those physical materials like a bloody sheepskin and like the substance from gall nuts and a quill pen and turn it into something sacred. What happens now, I can't describe it, but you're going to see it because we have two videos, uh, one that will show us how parchment is made. Have you ever wondered how they make it? It is a stinking, difficult business that ends up in something that is so beautiful that when you see a, a text written on parchment, it glows with sanctity and, 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 and with beauty. Uh, and then we're going to see a video that will show you a sofer, actually a soferet. A sofer is a scribe, one who actually writes the words. But this case is that the, this scribe happens to be a woman, which is very unusual. But nonetheless, uh, um, the scribe writes the words not just to be artistically, visually beautiful, but to be legally correct because we want the Torah scroll to be kosher. Doesn't mean we're going to eat it, but it means fit. So if we follow the laws and we follow the practices that transforms that bloody sheepskin or whatever the kosher animal skin might be into this article, we will have something that is so sacred that if it falls and touches the ground, 
the entire community has to fast for many days. That becomes so sacred that we don't read on the surface, but we're encouraged to drill into it, to immerse ourselves. I've used the expression before, it's not like <coughs> water skiing. Uh, I teach at Walsh, and when I teach at Walsh, uh, the students have to read pages and pages and pages, and they you know, sort of rush across the surface so they can cover all the material. We want you to slow down so that you begin to sink in to the meaning of the text. So let's start by taking a look. Are you going to start the first video for me? This is the first video. It happens to be a BBC video. I hope you enjoy it. I've come to Buckinghamshire to meet Wim Vischer, one of the few people who still makes parchment in the traditional way. Right, this is where it all starts. Okay. So you may need to hold your nose. It, these are natural animal skins. They're raw skins, you know, they do smell. Yes, it's quite a strong smell, isn't it? Yeah. So there we are. There's a calf skin preserved in salt, and that'll keep for up to six months like that. And we've been very, very careful in selecting these. We have to literally select every single skin yeah. to make them good enough for parchment. The, the big problem with parchment compared with leather is that there's no dye, no printing, so you see the actual skin when it's finished and you write on it. And so any blemishes also show up. So what's the next stage of the process? Well, we've got to start cleaning the skins up, getting rid of the salt, and I've got some pretty primitive washing machines here to show you. <laughs> Just turn it off. I'll show you what's going on in here. Here we are. These skins are soaked in lime, and the lime works into the skin and loosens the roots of the hair. See how it starts to become loose? And that's yeah. entirely due to the lime acting through the skin. Yeah, comes away really easily, doesn't it? Yeah. And so this skin's been in here for oh, quite a few days. It feels very smooth on the skin. Yeah. So you're left there with the skin surface completely undamaged, which will be the surface of the parchment. Yeah. So the next stage is to remove all that hair. There we are. The way this works, you trap the skin there with your body, and uh, off you go. So we take it from here for a further stage of cleaning? Yeah, the other side hasn't been touched yet. That was the side where the meat was. Oh, yeah. So this is fat on the yes. skin. Yes, And that's going to be really difficult to get away. It's completely unlike the hair, isn't it? It's really tough. How do you actually get this side off, then? Uh, knives, scraping. The leaves working on this at the minute. And the, the main idea is that the skin has to be stretched in a frame so that, as you can see, you can start to clean it and scrape it. And it's the essence of parchment making. Basic, very simple stuff, but you've got to really get it, all that muck off there, all the flesh, all the dirt, to make a perfect surface. Mm. It looks a very laborious and skillful process. It is, but it's quite simple. You want to have a go? I'd love to, yeah. It's like a punching motion. So you punch the flesh. Yeah. So you're trying to raise the flesh up. Yeah, brilliant. Okay. Well this, I'm not going to sort of cut through here. No, no, no. This will take quite a lot of work. Right. Okay. Right. So I punch into it. That's it. You want slightly shorter movements. Shorter. Yeah. That's it. <clears throat> so finally, it's the drying stage. Um, 
Here they are all drying. We've got heat in here to dry them and they'll be in here for half a day, something like that. Depends again, summer or winter, it changes a bit. Mm. And uh, when they're just right, we'll cut them out. How long has it taken to, to get to this stage? About four weeks. I'll just show Stephen. There you go. To watch we don't crease it. That's a quite a nice large skin, that, but that, it needs a bit of sanding doing to it. That's about all. Apart yeah. from that, that's the finished parchment. And you see the other side is, is as, as clean as the, the side that we were looking at. It's really nice to hold it in hands. Yeah. So it doesn't make a lot of difference whether you make parchment in England or in the United States or some other place, but you see that it takes an everyday material. You know, some people would then take that and make tents out of it or shoes out of it or other kinds of leather things out of it. But they make the parchment that in this particular place that the, the palace in, in Britain uses when they send out parchment invitations and things. Uh, you might have had an opportunity to uh, see the St. John's Bible at the Canton uh, Art Museum. Did anybody go and see that? It started this way. It started with these stinky, meaty, hairy skins uh, and the month or so long process that makes the parchment. So now we have the parchment, that, that cream-colored, lovely, not paper, but paper-like substance, and we now take that parchment to a sofair or a scribe. Um, I mentioned to you that it's unusual, I'm talking into this like this was the microphone. Uh, I mentioned to you that this is a, an unusual video because we're going to see a woman who is uh, the, the, uh, the so the scribe. Traditionally, amongst uh, Orthodox Jews, women wouldn't do this. It wouldn't be something that uh, they were privileged uh, uh, to do. Uh, so Julie is already, uh, Julie uh, Silver is her name, is already uh, on the liberal side but she will show you what the essence of being a scribe is about and how the scroll is written. And what I want you to look for very, very carefully is what happens when the quill pen and ink touch the parchment. Uh, it's not going to turn colors. It's not going to go poof. But for me, something happens because of all the efforts, blessings, preparations, and learning that it takes to bring the quill pen to the parchment. Can we watch this now? is the five books of Moses and it's the source and base of the Jewish tradition revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai by God and we're the people of the book so this is the, the book
Torah. It's read in synagogues. It has to be read from a scroll, and it has to be written in a particular way, by hand. My name is Julie Seltzer, and I'm currently working as a scribe, a soferet in Hebrew, which means that I write sacred writings. My role in this exhibit is to write a Torah that will be used in synagogues and in communities that are in need of a Torah. I'm a new scribe. This will be my first complete Torah. It's a science. <laughs> it's a science that I'm still learning. Traditionally, you go to a school and you learn how to be a scribe as a student of scribing. But as a woman, these schools were not open to me. So in the beginning of my process, I looked online and I taught myself some of the basics. And then eventually I found a teacher. And from there, that's when I really started learning the craft and how to properly form the letters. And it's also when I began learning the laws associated with scribing. You start with parchment. And parchment is made from the skin of a kosher animal. And then there's something to write with, which is the quill, which is, for me, the most challenging aspect currently. Cutting the quill from a feather, just getting it the right size, the right sharpness, the right angle, the right flow of ink. Before starting a project, and often during a project, it's traditional to go to a mikvah, a ritual bath, which is really for spiritual elevation. And also before you begin the project, you have to state an intention out loud, that you're doing this writing for the sake of the sanctity of what it is that you're writing. A Torah has 304,805 letters. Not one more, not one less, or else the entire thing is invalid. Every letter has rules that govern how the letter has to be written, because a letter can't look too much like another letter. If you look at a Torah closely, there are score lines. At the top of each line, there's an indentation, and it keeps the line straight. Another interesting rule is that there can't be a barrier between the hand and the Torah. I can't wear gloves that cover my hands. Another rule is that you can't write from memory. So even if I chanted this particular section at my bat mitzvah and I know it by heart, I still have to look at the written text, and I have to say each word out loud before I write it. 
I have the photocopy of the tikkun, so I underline each line that I write so I can follow where I am exactly. If my eye goes to the wrong place, I know where I am. It makes it easier to not make mistakes. The biggest myth about scribing that I've encountered is the myth that scribes can't make any errors or else they have to start over from the very beginning of the Torah. If and when I make a mistake, if I catch it right then and there, I try to remove as much ink as I can because it will be easier to scrape off. Some days will be better than others. Everyone has their bad days. Generally for me it's a bad quill day, which just means that I'm forming and reforming the quills. But in the end it's worth it because if you cut a good quill, then the writing goes really smoothly. Sometimes I'm in the story and I'm experiencing the story as I'm writing it, if it's more of a narrative section. And sometimes I'm really not thinking at all about anything. I'm just writing. It's meditative. And I'm hearing the words, I'm looking at the words, I'm saying the words. You have to say every word of the Torah out loud before you write it. So I'm saying the word hearing myself say it, and then writing it. Every single person that writes a Torah is going to write a slightly different looking Torah, even though it's completely anonymous. I'm not signing it. It's not my creative stamp, and I don't want that. It's, it's, it's a submission to something much larger than yourself. There's really nothing different about the Torah that I would create now versus 2,000 years ago in terms of the words and the letters. And that's part of what's amazing about this work is that I'm writing the same words as have been written for this many years. And for me personally, it just connects me back to something bigger, something greater, something much more timeless than me and my very impermanent, quick visit on this earth. She might be a uh, beginning scribe, but I'm telling you, that was beautiful. Um, so what have we seen here? We've seen ordinary substances like the stinky carcass, not the carcass, the, uh, the uh, skin, transformed into something beautiful. And then we've seen the scribe who is 
bound by practice and law to do things in a certain way. And that being bound by practice and law means A, the letters will be recognizable by anybody who can read Hebrew. And B, they will be written with sincere intention. It's not a matter of uh, I'm an artist and go and isn't that beautiful. It's that I have an intent about creating a sacred document which is composed of letters. How many? 304,000 whole bunch of letters. And not one more, not one less. And that each letter forms to create one of God's words. So because of being bounded by those laws, we create a sense of sanctity. That's nothing new in religious life. Uh, when you read about the, uh, the Mishkan, the, the, uh, the tent of meeting, pardon me, uh, in, in the wilderness, there were certain boundaries. There were laws about whether you could go, uh, into, who could go inside the curtain wall and who couldn't, who could get closer and who couldn't, what you had to do when you went into the tent, what you had to do when you went into the Holy of Holies. Each of those laws created a level of sanctity and holiness so that your actions were uh, filled with intent and had the possibility of transcending the moment. So the Torah, many, many laws for each letter uh, about how the letter is formed properly, about what the materials can be, and so on and so forth. Uh, and because of that, these materials are transformed into something that is sacred. If we were uh, Orthodox or traditional Jews holding a traditional uh, theology, we would say that this scroll that I have here is identical to the scroll that uh, was made by Moses after Sinai. And because of that, this scroll contains the absolute word of God, revealed word of God. Now, I know that there are some problems. How could Moses write about after his death and all that sort of... Moses can do it. Moses can do it. Um, that idea that this scroll is identical to the scroll that Moses made, who heard God's words, is we would call it the... It's called Masorah, the chain of tradition. That because one sees the word, says the word, writes the word, checks the word, that there is very little uh, possibility for the transmission of air. Now, you know yourselves from looking at all the various copies of Gospels that, that uh, people have found in the church that there are many, many errors that, that scribes end up doing. You know, I, I find it hard to, to copy even with a computer to copy some other text over and over and over again because little errors creep in. You begin to see things that aren't there. Uh, you begin to hear things that might not be there. Just uh, listen to the words of the people who sing for the Star Spangled Banner sometimes. You know, you'd be amazed <laughs> at what they're saying. Um, but I can tell you uh, that if you look for variant texts of Torah scrolls, you will find a small number significantly smaller number. 
there was a guy by the name of Kittel. He was a Yeki, he was a German. And Kittel wrote a Bible that was called the Kittel Bible. And what he tried to do was to create an apparatus at the bottom of the page in which he listed not just the, the top of the page, what people accept as the Torah scroll, but trying to list the variant texts that he could find. Now the print's kind of small, and sometimes it takes this much up on the page, but when you think of a scroll that has been copied for thousands of years by tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of scribes, the fact that there are only this many variant texts is almost miraculous. So all of that goes into making this document sacred. And I'd like you to have an opportunity to see it. And I'm going to ask you, in fact, uh, to do one of two things. We can either ask you to stand around the outside of the room and unroll the scroll all the way around so each of you holds a little bit and you can see a large expanse of Torah. Or if you feel that you don't want to stand holding the Torah, we'll put these three tables together roll the Torah out here and you can gather on either side. How many people don't want to stand? You can bring a chair. Okay, you can bring a chair. It seems like most people would like to have the opportunity to do this. So um, please make sure that you haven't got coffee or sweet rolls on your hands. And if you would make big semicircle around here. So the Torah scroll is uh, written and put on two different uh, uh, rollers. They are called Eitz Chaim, Trees of Life. Isn't it interesting that on the day we're talking about Eitz Chaim, we're thinking about the synagogue Eitz Chaim, Tree of Life in Pittsburgh. Um, and the Torah is normally dressed sort of like a biblical priest. It's got a robe. It normally has a breastplate, which we would hang over here, but the sisterhood needle pointed the covers, and God forbid I should cover that up. Um, it has a pointer, a yad. Uh, this one has a little hand and a finger on it so that we can follow the text and not smudge it with our own fingers. Uh, when we take the, the uh, cover off, it's got a wimple, something to tie it together. Sometimes it's just, I'm going to put it down so I don't drop it. You don't have to know the term harpa and shanda to know that if I drop it, it's a harpa and a shanda. Okay, so we're going to go take this. Let's go on over here and give. Okay, I want you to take one roll. Is that you can help, help her take that roll and start to roll this out around? And what I'd like you to do when it comes to you, okay, you got it? Is this is too heavy? I'm taller than you. I'd like you just to hold the, the top and bottom of the parchment. Yeah. Now the Torah scroll is, uh, is normally written legally with a non-permanent ink. Isn't that strange? Something so sacred, we don't use permanent ink. 
But the ink has a special recipe. There are actually a couple formulas for it. Uh, it becomes a kind of waxy ink, so it doesn't penetrate the parchment, but rather it sticks onto the parchment. And that means that when you use it for a long time, sometimes the letters will begin to break or the ink will actually pop off the, the parchment. So the Torah scroll, in order to stay kosher, to stay fit for use, has to be inspected periodically by a scribe who will make sure that the letters are all together proper and that they haven't begun to pop off the text. Um, you know, it all depends on how their mothers fed them. Uh, <laughs> I, I can't tell you, because obviously once, once we get a, a parchment, they, they cut it to be the standard size for the whole text. I can tell you that what you'll see is that each section of the skin here will have at least three uh, or four columns, and they will be sewn together. You, each of you should probably be very close to a seam, uh, where the, the uh, sections of parchment are, are sewn together. They're sewn together using a material called gedeen, which is usually the uh, muscle fiber of an ox or a kosher animal. They beat it into fibers, and then they have people who go like this until they get long strands of thread. While he's going that way, maybe we'll do this. Just hang on to the parchment itself. And we'll go on over here and see if we can't have more people. Thanks, Doc. Got it? Go for it. Don't drop it. Huh? Yeah, you can come on and move a little closer. That'll be helpful. Very good. Okay. The Torah, the five books of Moses is divided into 54 weekly portions. And they're not portions because we happen to like their words. They are contiguous portions. So that what happens is, as you begin to read this Torah at the beginning of the year, the holiday we call Simchat Torah, which is the rejoicing of the Torah, if you read the full portion each and every week, you would end up at the end of the year having read the entire Torah scroll, all five books. Why 54, he asks. Why 54? Uh, because there are some weeks that we have double portions. Uh, I'm going to come right over here and get on the inside. Thank you. Oh, you're so good. Almost done. Almost to the end. You don't have to go all the way to the end. I would imagine that's probably the beginning of the book of Exodus. Yeah, Ve'el Shemot. Uh-huh. I'm sorry? How long will it be used? Is that what I, my problem is that I'm deaf in one ear. I'm coming over here. It, it's my problem. Not yours. What was the question? The question was down. How yes. Long, how long does this Torah last? This how long does it last? Yes, yes. Uh, there's, uh, typically, well, this scroll is over 100 years old. Uh, uh, the more it's used, actually, the longer it'll last. It's 
made of leather, and it's like your shoe. If you leave a shoe in a closet for a couple years, it gets brittle and it'll break apart. But if you don't, if you use it all the time, it stays supple. That's with a piece, supple. Uh, so look, we have here the Torah scroll. Over here, we're almost at the very, very beginning, at the, the beginning of Genesis. Even where you're standing, you will notice certain kinds of things. For example, you will notice here, there are several spaces between one line and the next one. You'll find it there. You don't have to, you can even be on this side of the room and see it. And you'll find it in some other places, which I've probably already missed. Right there. Those spaces indicate the end of one book, at this point, the end of the book of Genesis or Breshit, and the beginning of the second book, uh, Shemot uh, or, or Exodus. So one of the ways we navigate around Torah is by looking at some of that special spacing. Now, as you look at special spacing, if over here is the beginning of the book of Exodus, we know the story flow, what's going on here, we're moving over here, over here, over here, and all of a sudden it says, Oz Yashir Moshe Ubenei Israel. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song. What song is that? The song at the sea. We have here the uh, enslavement of the Jewish people by, by Pharaoh. We have Moses coming and saying, Don't do that, it's a bad thing. God saying, I will harden his heart. My firstborn, get out, get out. We get out to the sea, we get through the sea, <coughs> and then Moses, <coughs> pardon me, sings this song, uh, which we call the Song of the Sea. In, in that song is a, a little bit of our liturgy, who is like you, O God, amongst the gods that people worshipped? Who is like you, O God, capital G, amongst the gods, small g with an S, that people worship, glorious and holiness, and so on and so forth. But you can tell by this spacing, which will be the same in every Torah scroll, where we are. Rabbi sings wonderfully. Sometimes I sing wonderfully. <laughs> when I was a younger man, I actually started out as a soprano and ended up as a bass in the one year. Um, so we move through here and we see other kinds of special spacing in the Torah. From where you, maybe from where you are, you can see that there's a big white space here. Uh, and those spacings tell us where certain sections of the Torah uh, are. Let's go around here and see. Here's the beginning of another book. If that was Exodus, this must be Genesis, Leviticus. And this is all the Levitical stuff. This is what priests do. How they offer sacrifices, what they wear, and so on. Uh, until we get to about Leviticus 19, which is the section that we call the beginning of the holiness code. Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And the an interesting thing about the holiness code is it doesn't say that in order to be holy, you have to stay away from unclean uh, uh, foods and people and all that sort of stuff. It says in addition to that, in addition to keeping Sabbaths and so on, you have to keep a just life. You have to treat your neighbor equitably and has all of that beautiful um, ethical material that tells us what's going on there. Um, if we go on further, we're over here towards the end. You can see very clearly the last 
uh, second to the last portion called Ha'azinu. You can tell it because there are these two narrow columns uh, in each of the larger columns. And that's where Moses, at the end of his life, he's given his kishkas to the people. He's talked to them. He's harangued them, follow God's law. He's told them, remember, God loves you. He's told them, look what happens when you do the wrong thing. All of those kinds of things. And he ends up by saying, I call heaven and earth to witness to this covenant of the people. Until finally we come to the very last parsha, the very last section, the short section called Vizot HaBracha. And this is the blessing. And Moses dies. And it ends up by saying, and there has not arisen a prophet uh, like Moses who knew God face to face. And when we finish reading that, we say, Chazak, Chazak, Venit Chazek. We join together and say, be strong, be strong, and we will all be strengthened. We are strengthened by these words, and then we go right back to Breshit and begin it again. Another thing about this scroll, I think this scroll, this might be what is called a Vav Torah. Just a minute here. Vav, Vav, Vav. A Vav Torah, the Hebrew letter Vav, looks sort of like this. It's just a little like that. It means and, you know, uh, or uh, words to that effect. And Vav Torahs are written where the first letter of each column, you know, the upper right-hand letter of each column starts with a vav. I, I don't know if it actually happens in every single column, but the vav Torahs are written uh, mostly that way. So now you see what it looks like. You'll notice from where you're standing what, what uh, uh, the Soferet said, there's a scoring on each page and the letters hang from it. They don't sit on it, they hang from it. And uh, you'll also notice, uh, if you've ever seen Hebrew in a prayer book or in another, an, another volume, there are no dots and dashes and things that are vowels in this Torah. The Torah is written vowelless, which means that you have to be able to know the language pretty well or practice a portion an awful lot in order to intone it and read it properly. Uh, it used to drive me crazy. I studied Hebrew from the time I was in probably third grade. Yeah, probably third grade. I went to the Hebrew Union College and studied it every day. I went to Israel and I still couldn't read Hebrew as well as a three-year-old. <laughs> Israeli, because they just it was their language. Uh, so the, this Torah scroll is is uh, written obviously without vowels. The other thing that I will tell you, because I've already suggested to you that it's the same. How can it be the same if you have the signature of each, and I mean signature figuratively, the style of each sofer or soferet? Well, this is it. The spacing is the same. Uh, very few variants that you will find. The calligraphy is pretty much the same for these. This is an Ashkenazic scroll. It's written in the style of, of uh, Central European and uh, uh, Jews and so on. So that wherever I go in the world, any place I go in the world, they will be reading the same portion that I was, would be reading at home. And the document would be 
something that I could read wherever I went. So what I'd like to do now is I'd like to start rolling it back towards the center. And when you roll it, we want to make sure you can actually turn it sideways, like Zeb is doing. And as he comes by, you'll let go of it. And try to keep it tight around the rollers if you can. And when you've let go of it, if you want to go and sit down, please feel free to do so. How many people can read Hebrew? Uh, if we were in an Orthodox synagogue, there'd be a heck of a lot. Uh, uh, but I would say in our congregation, our congregation is a Reformed congregation, which means that we are a Western-oriented or Western interpretation of Jewish life. And that means that our kids... Uh, educationally and our families are integrated into society very very well so our kids by and large do not go to day school so they don't study Hebrew every day but they do prepare for their bar and bat mitzvahs they'll study for three or four years uh, once or twice a week to learn to read the language by the time they get to their bar and bat mitzvah they'll probably have a vocabulary of a hundred words or so but they'll be able to read the letters Okay, so they can intone the prayers of the prayer book and so on and so forth. Uh, and that, that's, a fairly high, that's a fairly high number. Uh, um, and then it just depends on whether they keep it up or not. Uh, I, my children, uh, uh, my son Gabriel, my younger boy, I know still reads Hebrew. Uh, A very significant question. God, I hope I can. I hope I can answer it. What? Why this letter is so long and dark, and it is the letter Dalid. And it's at the end of a... And you also notice hmm? that the letter Ayan in the first word of that line is rather large. Ha-ha! Okay, because you happen to be looking at the Shema of the Shema. Yisrael Hashem Hashem You can't elongate the dollar sound, but you can elongate the other. Okay? And that is, this, this is, you know, this is the passage that every devout mm -hmm. Jew says twice a day, every day of their life. And when we roll the scroll out in our congregation, Many people who don't read Hebrew in general can recognize that portion. And why the ayin and the dalet are large, the, the, the uh, translation would be here, or listen Israel, the uh, Adonai is our God, Adonai is one. The ayin of Shema, listen, and the dalet of Echad, one, are written large, the rabbis tell us, because they form the word aid, which means witness. So when one says the Shema, they are witnessing to God's unity, God's oneness. How many scribes would there have been? For this scroll? Mm -hmm. One. One? One person? One. Wow. Um, but take them a long time. Oh, Did you? How do you know what vowels to put in? There is a Hebrew grammar. Because Hebrew is, is an ancient language, which originally started without vowels, but had vowel sounds, 
with the development of the linguistics, people began to put diacritical marks in. So it's a later addition. Uh, originally, we believe that the Hebrew was written like without even divisions for words. One long line. The, they then developed the vocalic system and put the vowels in. And there is a grammar for that. And uh, rabbinic students break their teeth on that, I tell you. Please. So when, when you have a, you read the scroll in Hebrew. Yes. And then you translate it to English. I normatively do. Some congregations read it only in Hebrew. But uh, I, you know, recognizing the reality, even if, I, if, if, I, if the scroll were written in French, it would be my second language and many people wouldn't understand it. In order for it to be meaningful, you, I feel you have to put it in the vernacular as well. Rabbi, Question. back over here, behind well, you, behind you. Behind I, you. <laughs> hey. There. Yeah. Um, in this day and age of electronics and having a Torah online right how you know obviously it's not hand scribed right it's typed right how, how uh, does that make it um, holy or how do you make it holy it's a very very good question a book that's printed that has God's name in it even though it might have been printed on a printing press or electronically or whatever according to our tradition, has to be buried when it's no longer used because it's got God's name in it. You don't throw it out with a fish, okay? That having been said, there is a level of sanctity that the tradition requires for synagogue worship that asks for, I won't say demands, because you could have a situation in which people can't afford a Torah, uh, that, that asks for the handwritten scroll. And why? Again, because of the variety of laws and intentions and so on that takes the simple object and sanctifies them, makes them holy. Uh, so if a congregation can afford a Torah scroll, it should have one. Um, if it can afford two, it should have two. Ten, it should have ten. Somebody passes away and a family want to honor their memory by making a significant gift to the congregation, they will make a gift of a Torah scroll. When you come to Temple Israel in the, in the cases outside in the social hall, you'll see that there is a Sephardic Torah scroll. The parchment has the same words on it, but rather than being on rollers that lo roll out that way, it's in something called the teak. It's in a cylindrical case that opens like that, okay? Uh, when Eugene Hervey passed away many years ago, some of you might know the his name, uh, his wife, Ivan, uh, made a, uh, uh, a gift to the temple of a, enough money to buy a Torah scroll. So I went to New York at that time, and I started looking for parchments. Now, the parchment that we got is nice, but it's not the best. I mean, you can, when you look at it, you can tell whether a, a scribe is, is, is skilled and experienced or not. And this one was a nice parchment, but certainly not the best. And the parchment itself was $25,000, and that's 20-some-odd years ago. So by the time you put it in the case, and if you get some nice Torah jewelry, crowns, or whatever to put on it, you're looking at thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000. So it's a, a major uh, uh, contribution. The nice thing is, as we said before, is that you can amortize that thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 over 100 years, 150 years if you take care of it. Question, please. 
given this exactness and precision, what did the documentary hypothesis and how did it affect Judaism? Very, very good question. Um, amongst people that I would call ultra-Orthodox, they would say that the documentary hypothesis poppycock, that's a good Hebrew term, uh, because God gives the Torah, speaks the Torah the way God wants to. And if you want to play around with it and say, so they would not believe that the documentary hypothesis was real. Now you say, well, that's crazy, that's crazy. We were in Israel studying in 1972. Yes. And it was right around 1972 that the great American institution, the McDonald's Corporation, um, opened up their uh, first kosher McDonald's stands in Israel. It happened to correspond with the time when the Disney Corporation put out their movies on dinosaurs. So the uh, McDonald's people had these Happy Meals, uh, which had little dinosaurs in them as the toys. The Orthodox rabbinate of Israel would not allow that to be sold in Jerusalem because if you have a dinosaur, people are going to say, well, how old is that? And if it's more than 5,779 years old, can't be true. So there are people who still have that much of a fundamentalist approach that don't accept all this. You know, it, it doesn't make any difference what you say, the scholars say, because you have the Torah text and it's what, what the rabbis say. It's true. What does it mean for me? I'm a liberal Jew. I studied all this stuff in college and as well as the seminary. For me, it helps to inform the, what I would call the ever-evolving spirituality and spiritual history of the text. Uh, if, if, uh, uh, and it's more, I think, more apparent in, in Hebrew Bible than it is in New Testament. But if we took Hebrew Bible, or for that matter, New Testament, the way it was actually written, the way it was heard for the first time, and didn't allow for the passage of time and tradition to help us with interpretation and understanding, we would miss a tremendous amount of what the text is about, the tremendous opportunity to allow it to be meaningful in our lives. Uh, Zev, I think, where did he go? Oh, there he is. Zev. I don't hear and I don't see, which <laughs> probably makes it pretty scary driving in front of me or behind me when I go to... <clears throat> um, Zev sent out an article uh, to, to you all, or has it for you all, which talks about Midrash, uh, which will lead me to the thing that I'll, I'll finish up with, because I know you've got to go, uh, and I've got to go. Um, there is a mystical way of studying Torah. If you were to study it the way the, the documentary hypothesis people, you would apply rationality to the whole text. Okay, linguistics and all those sciences. But rabbinically, the text is studied in layers. Remember I talked about immersing yourself in the, in the text? And they create uh, an acronym. Um, the acronym is called PARDES. PARDES means the orchard like the Garden of Eden. Pardes is composed of four different letters. The Pei, the first letter, the P, stands for Peshat, which means the simple meaning. It's the meaning that you get when you read the text very carefully, very slowly, and listen to what it has to say. When you read it that way, the Peshat, you begin to see 
sometimes uh, interesting words are used. Uh, uh, words that, that uh, there might be more to them than you see. So the pshat is the simple meaning of the text. When you've mastered that, you begin to go to the next level. Par, the resh is for remez, or the illusion. The text alludes to something. You might end up uh, putting two, two texts side by side. This last week's Torah portion uh, was called Vayera, and it has to do with Abraham being in his tent out in the wilderness and the three strangers or the three angels coming on their way to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And by the way, they stop by the tent and uh, announce to Abraham and Sarah that a year from then they're going to have a baby. But the portion then ends with the section called Akedat Yitzchak, the binding of Isaac. So you begin with the announcement, oh joy, the covenant will be fulfilled, we're going to have a baby, and it ends with God saying, take that baby, the promise of, of the covenant, and offer it up as a sacrifice. When you put that together, you say to yourself, there's something going on here, something's happening, this alludes to something more deeper. More deeper? Alludes to something deeper in the text. So you spiral, spiral down from the pshat, the simple meaning, the remez, the illusion, to the drash or the drasha, the interpretation. And the interpretation is very, very deep because the interpretation is still going on today. Our times, what we know, our political situations, our spiritual situations, all cause us to look at the text and see deeper and deeper things. And given the example that I uh, suggest to you uh, of this uh, wished-for child and now offered up as a sacrifice, we might begin to see in that text, not that God was testing Abraham to see whether Abraham would do it or not, but my favorite thing is that Abraham is testing God. Abraham says in his heart, this is Midrash, you won't find it in the text. It is what happens when the fertile human mind and spirit <clears throat> begin to live in this text with these values, with this God. The Midrash might very well say, Abraham said, I believe in God, and God made this promise. And in order for me to know that God is faithful to the promises that God makes, I'm going to follow the rules 100%. And if the knife goes from here and goes through my child and kills my child, then this isn't the God that I want to worship because then keep his promises. And so Abraham, with all of his might, began to fulfill what God asked. And all of a sudden the angel screams out, Avraham, Avraham, Abraham, Abraham, don't put your hand against the kid. Now, if I go through the pshat, the remez, and the drashah, and I get as deep as I possibly can. If I am a holy person, schooled in the law, righteous, I keep the Sabbath, I do all these kinds of things, there is the possibility that I will penetrate to the to the sod, the secret, or the foundation of the text. And what is that? Our tradition tells us that God used the Torah as the blueprint for the creation so that it looked like, acted like, and would become what God intended. So if I study Torah, if I asok b'divrei Torah, I occupy myself, I 
uh, soak myself in Torah and penetrate all of those layers, I can come down to the secrets of being. Last question. Yes, there are actually, there are actually two, two cycles. There are more than two cycles. The, there, there is, uh, there are, uh, is an annual cycle and a triennial cycle. Uh, because in an annual cycle, sometimes you'll read several chapters of Torah on a Sabbath, for example, it could make your services last forever. And people would fall asleep, God forbid. Uh, they would never fall asleep during my sermons, God forbid. Um, because I keep them short. Um, so one cycle is the annual cycle, which takes those portions for each week and reads the entire portion each week. In which case, in a year, you would have read every one of those 304,806 letters. Uh, there is also the triennial cycle, which takes each portion, divides it into thirds, and then the first year reads the first third, second year, the second third, third year, third third, which makes the sections that you read more manageable on a Sabbath, for example, but it will take you three years to get through. So that's, that's the weekly cycle. There's also something called the Petichta cycle. Um, and that cycle is the cycle that pulls out special Torah portions for the individual holidays. So for example, the story of, of the Exodus from Egypt, is really pretty close to the beginning of Torah, but Passover's in the spring. So while I might be using one scroll and going portion by portion by portion, when I get to Pesach, I turn back to Exodus and I read that story. That's a special section. Okay, why did you ask that question? I can make it longer if you want. Yeah. Does the Torah have a special uh, truth factor that's better than the other Hebrew scriptures? And are they interpreted in the light of the Torah as a result? An interesting, I mean, that's really a profound question. Uh, certainly, uh, and you got to go to church pretty soon, and I would really get in trouble. Um, certainly, in a traditional congregation, the Torah is revealed, okay? God's word is there. And therefore, I guess it would be, you know, when you consider the Gospels as being the pinnacle of your scripture, uh, the Torah would be the truth factor. And indeed, in most interpretations, whether they're interpretations about law or lore, a Torah quote is the most powerful evidence, okay? If I can give you an argument that the text means this or that the person figured it out because of this and I can give you a biblical verse that seems to fit, that's, that's the most powerful evidence. Uh, uh, so Torah, the Torah text will trump most everything. Forgive me for that language. Um, okay, ladies and gentlemen, I thank you very much. And... I'm going to turn me off. Chazak, chazak. Venit chazak, amen.